Well, my friends, we are in Ezra chapter 9 today. Ezra chapter 9. There are 10 chapters in the book of Ezra. So today, actually, we begin our final study in the book of Ezra. However, it's a two-part study, which means next week we will finish our final study in the book of Ezra. And as we have been noticing and paying attention to, Ezra is a book that is divided up into two sections, divided really by a 60-year period of time between the beginning of the book and those events that lead to the ending of the book. Section 1, the first six chapters, deal with the first returning wave of Babylonian captive exiles, Jewish people that are returning from Babylon. And as you recall, they were led by Zerubbabel. They were led by Joshua, the high priest. Zerubbabel, the governor. Joshua, the high priest. And those events pretty much took place around, we'll just say, the year 520 B.C. Then, a couple weeks back, we moved into the second section of the book. Remember, the overall theme of this book is rebuilding sort of the temple, uh, restoration in our walks with the Lord. And we see a lot of that in that second section. So from chapter 7 to chapter 10, a new wave of exiles returned. This time they're led by a fellow by the name of Ezra, who serves as sort of both a governor and a priest of the people when he returns. And as I mentioned, 60 years separate these two sections. But here we are now in chapter 7 through the end of the book, and Ezra is leading a group of about 5,000 men, women, and children. Brave men, we said. Courageous men, women, and children that are making this journey back, remember, with loads of money over really unsafe terrain. Maybe terrain's not the right word, but just an unsafe area of land where people are going to come and rob them and steal from them, but they trust the good hand of their Lord. And as we saw last week, They make it back to the land because of, or with that, I should say, great faith and trust that the good hand of God would be with them, and it was. And God was with them, and he brought them back. And I have no doubt that as they return, there's this sense that, man, this is going to be great. We're going to, we, here we are in Babylon, and Babylon's crazy, and billboards and things on the radio, and everyone's talking about this. Yesterday, we came out of the Valentine's dinner, and I just had a great time. I was blessed, I was encouraged, I was with great people, and I walk out the door into a puff of smoke first off, and I'm like, oh, gee whiz. And the first word I heard was the F word, and it wasn't like friendly or something like that. And I was thinking, hey, here we are, back in the world again, you know what I mean? And it just sort of came on you. And I, and it, I imagine these guys, they're thinking, we had enough of that. We were in Babylon, and we saw those things, and we heard those things, and people were doing those things, but we're going to go back to Jerusalem and it's going to be great. And everywhere we go, people are going to be talking about God. And everybody I meet is going to be fired up about God. And it is going to be such a wonderful place to go. Praise music is going to be on in every store you walk into. And you're going to go to restaurants and people are going to be bowing their heads like you and your family do to pray. People are going to be talking about God, thinking about God, pointing people to God. It's going to be really awesome when we get there. And I agree, that would be really awesome, wouldn't it? It's like going and living at a retreat center or something like that. This is going to be a great thing when we get there. But unfortunately, that was not Ezra's experience. And so when Ezra does get back to Jerusalem, imagine Ezra's heartbreak when just days after arriving back in the city of Jerusalem, a group of people approaches him and informs him of just the opposite. The opposite of praise everywhere you look and so on. So read with me verses 1 and 2. It says this, It says, after these things had been done, the officials approached me 
And they said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in all this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. We'll talk about a rough way to start your first day, quote-unquote, on the job for Ezra. He's going back and he's going to have to govern these people, and this is the news that is dumped on his desk. That the people of the land, especially, foremost it says, the leaders of the people have intermarried with the surrounding nations. All of these ites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, and so on. And rather than returning to an environment where everyone loves Jesus, and his name is continually upon everyone's lips, instead Ezra encounters compromise. And he encounters sin, which has ultimately manifested itself with intermarriage with the heathen nations. And again, most significantly, notice who's leading the way in this. Verse 2, it says, And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men had been foremost. The leading men were leading the way, but they weren't doing so unto good. And the leaders, they were setting an example, but it certainly was not a positive example. And so we see here now in chapter 9 that that first generation of believers, and remember, of the 4 million or so that were in exile, these were the 50,000 that said, I'm going where God is going. I'm going back to Jerusalem. I'm leaving everything I know and all the comforts, even though they were in captivity, the comforts of this captivity, and I am going back to Jerusalem. These were fired up followers of God. But here we are now in chapter 9, and little by little, they had allowed themselves to make compromises, so much so that they come to the point where they intermarry with foreign women. Notice the contrast. Remember these words from chapter 4? Chapter 4, verse 3, it says this, when, when the surrounding nations approached the rubble and the others and said, hey, let us join with you. We worship your God like you worship. We'll build with you. And their response was, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. So in response to that request for a religious and a political merger, their answer is no. Somewhat, if you will, you look at that, it was immediate, it was decisive, and it was even a bit rude. But they said, no, nothing, no way, it's not going to happen, don't even ask again. And they send those people on their particular way. And yet here now, in chapter 9, not only are they making religious and political mergers, but they are entering into the most important merger that any of us will ever make, the merger of our marriages and our families. So again, let's look at verse 1. It says, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, they have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with the abominations, with their abominations, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. You know, in the Bible, it is never a good thing when there are, is a listing of the ites. You go through the Bible and you read, and if there's a listing of the ites, trouble is usually following right after it. And so here you have the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and all of the rest of them. These are the people 
that the children of Israel were warned about a thousand years earlier to keep themselves from. So in the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses was leading the people, these words were given to the people of Israel. They had not entered into the land, but they were prepping and getting ready to enter into the land. And this is what God gave Moses to speak to them. He said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and he clears many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, you shall have no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or excuse me, or taking their daughters for your sons. And yet here we are now, a thousand years later, and they're back in the land and they're intermarrying with these people. Now, perhaps you're thinking, so what's the big deal? So they're intermarrying with some nice neighbors that live down the street and the kids played together in the sandbox and now they're getting married here. So they're marrying outside of their own ethnic background and they're marrying outside of their own religious background. Well, big deal number one is this. God said not to do it. So big deal number one is God says don't do it. So that alone should be enough or cause for obedience. God said don't do it, so we don't do it. But big deal number two is why God said those words. And I think that's significant. Now certainly, if God says it, that should be enough for us. But I do think it's important for us to understand the reason why God is saying certain things. And so God says to them, and he explains to them, why he is against intermarrying. As a matter of fact, the next verse in the Deuteronomy passage, it's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4, he says, because they will turn, they will, they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And that's God's chief concern, the spiritual condition of his holy people. Remember, the word holy means separate. So they are separate for a reason, and he is concerned about their spiritual condition. God knows that to compromise that separation and have them intermarrying with these neighboring nations is only going to lead the people of Israel to stumble and to fall. That if the children of Israel that if they reach out their hands, so to speak, to pull these heathen nations up to their plane, that the end result will inevitably not be to pull the heathen nations up, but rather for the children of Israel to be pulled down. So imagine, if I was standing on a stage up here that was perhaps four or five feet up in the air, and someone comes to the foot of the stage, and I reach out my hand, who's it going to be easier for? For me to pull them up to my level, or for them to pull me down to their level? Well, the answer is it'll be easier for them. I'm a pretty big guy. But it'll be easier for them to pull me down than for me to pull them up. And the Lord knows that answer. He knows the answer to that question. And so He gives them clear instructions in His Word. Don't do it. Don't marry, intermarry with the surrounding nations. But they do. Despite being so bold and strong earlier in their walk, that's chapter 4, remember, they compromise. And these believers begin to move in the direction of clear disobedience to God's Word. And what we see has happened in their walk is something that I suggest to you can happen in every one of our walks. We can be in a place where we're strong, where we're standing up for ourselves, where we're taking good strong stances as the Lord would have us to do. But then as time goes by, suddenly we find ourselves compromising. And a looseness has sort of set in. And the next thing you know, we end up somewhere and we think, how did I get here? I wouldn't even make a political agreement with someone before, and now I'm entering into intermarriages with these foreign women. How did I get here? 
And what was the path that brought me to this particular place? A looseness had set in. Now notice what it says in verse 6 of our chapter today. Ezra says, Oh my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. I want to draw your attention to the word there in the middle of that verse, the word iniquities. Because I believe that that word is deliberately chosen and that we should contrast the word iniquities that is chosen there with another word that has similar meaning, the word sin. So in the Bible, sometimes you see the word sin or sins, and other times you see the word iniquities. Some of your versions may have the word trespass or trespasses that are listed there. And there's a difference between those two. Sin or sins, properly speaking, refers to missing the mark. And the idea is this. It's generally being less than the standard of God's holiness. And so you and I, we are a people that are in our sins and we are born with sin. We miss the mark. We generally fall short of God's perfection. Not one thing in particular that I'm going to point to, but just who we are. We are those that are sinners. And it's the mark of our fallen nature. But it's distinguished from, in the Scripture, willful and deliberate disobedience. That's iniquities in the Bible, or trespasses in the Bible. Willful or deliberate disobedience. Iniquities refers to willful disobedience against the clearly known will of God. And that's what's going on here in Ezra chapter 9. In Ezra 9, they know what Deuteronomy 7 says. They know what Exodus chapter 24 says about not intermarrying. They know the examples of those that have come before them. And they say, you know what? We don't really care. Here are these formerly on fire believers. They know what God's word says on the issue, but one way or another, they convince themselves that God's word doesn't apply to them. At least not as it relates to this particular issue. Now, I can't get into the minds of these believers, and I can't tell you exactly how they rationalize these things for themselves, but I've heard plenty of other people rationalize about the same issue. So they probably said something to this effect. I know what God's Word says, but that was written a thousand years ago. Times have changed. Times are different now. Or maybe they said, sure, God's Word says this about intermarrying, but there aren't any nice, and translate that cute, Jewish girls in our synagogue. And God wants me happy. Or, I know what God's Word says, but I'm really hoping that I could be a positive influence on her. And perhaps she will start attending synagogue with me. Or even in the extreme, I know what God says about this, but I don't care. At least I know that He will forgive me. And those kinds of statements is what has led many people in our day, perhaps some of us here in this room, to make decisions that we would have never made five years earlier, ten years earlier, fifteen years earlier. And Ezra, when he is informed of this information, notice what it says in verse 3. He's appalled. I can't believe this. He says, As soon as I heard this, I ripped my garments, my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiled, they gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening. You imagine this crowd of people. And there were others that were shocked by this sin as well, this transgression. And they gather together and they just sit sort of in silence. 
And Ezra, as it says there, is appalled. And he sits there until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, Ezra rose from his fasting with his garment and his cloak torn, and he fell on his knees, and he spread out his hands to the Lord his God, saying, which we'll look at a little bit later. Now, it was these sins of compromise and intermarriage which led the children of Israel to participate in idolatry in the first place. Intermarriage and compromise, they were the very sins which forced the people into exile 150 years earlier. And God had warned them. Again, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and yet they ignored God's warning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to your left to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. In that passage, we read a sad summary of the life and the reign of King Solomon. First uh, Kings chapter 11. Remember, King Solomon was the second king, third king, excuse me, of Israel. David, his father, was the great king of Israel. Great, wonderful things were happening. And Solomon really got to enjoy a lot of the benefits of God's blessing on David and his life and his administration. And during Solomon's life, he begins great and wonderful and good things are happening. But then life began to change for him. Much like these exiles that returned there, compromise began to set in. And we read about that in chapter 11 of 1 Kings. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonians, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn your heart after their gods. That's a quote from Exodus 34. But Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and he had 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Despite the repeated warnings of Scripture, Solomon determined, one way or another, that those words didn't apply to him. And so he gave himself over to the lust of his heart. Again, despite repeated warnings. Solomon was warned by his dad, David, against going uh, into, it says, or after forbidden woman. Now in that case, David gives him instructions about adultery, but we read this. He, he essentially said, don't do it. This is from the book of Proverbs, where David said these words to so, um, Solomon. He said, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who touches his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now the New Testament correlation to that verse would be what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians. 
And there in the book he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man shall reap what he sows. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? All of us know the answer to that. No, absolutely not. And God had repeatedly warned his people against intermarriage because he knew that marrying foreign women, and that would be the spiritual adulteress, if you want to make the connection there with Solomon, but marrying foreign men and women are going to lead the heart of the people astray. So look again at the first Kings passage that I just read to you. And notice there, here again are the ites. Right? You see the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. And as I said earlier, it's never a good thing when the ites are listed. Each of them with their foreign gods, each of them an abomination to the Lord. Look at the closing verses of that passage. It talks about Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. It talks about Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. Let me just draw your attention a little bit to these false gods. We learned that the worship, historically, we learned that the worship of Chemosh, Chemosh was a false god that was depicted in the form of a fish. In extreme cases, worship of Chemosh was done with human sacrifice. So this is found in 2 Kings chapter 3. It says this, When King Moab, the king of Moab, saw that the battle was against him, it wasn't going well, he panics, and it says he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and he offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. The passage makes it clear he offers him to his god, Chemosh. Molech, which you see listed in the passage here, the worship of Molech, referred to in our passage as the abomination of the Ammonites, consisted of the regular, as opposed to extreme cases like we're about to lose a war, it consisted of the regular offering of babies in the fire. The god was formed out of a, like some kind of an iron, if you will. It was heated up, the arms were outstretched, and the babies were offered to this god in the fire laid upon the arms. And the people would dance around the fire, screaming and yelling to drown out the sound of the baby crying as it was being burned alive. The worship of Molech. All the way back in the book of Leviticus, before the people even entered, or even really thought about entering in, they were nowhere close to getting in, all the way back in the book of Leviticus, before the people even enter into the land, God warned them of the abomination of the Ammonites. And he told them the consequences for, for participating in their sin. He says this in Leviticus 20, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. He warned them, and he gave them very strict consequences for doing so. But despite these warnings, under the leadership of Solomon, and then again and again and again, thereafter, the people did offer their infants to Molech, the false god of the Ammonites. Listen to this. You can just sense the disbelieving incredulity is the word I wrote, but I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be smart or whatever, but uh, nonetheless, that's what I wrote, and so that's what we're going with. But listen to the incredulity of the Lord speaking through the prophet. He says this, They build high places to Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and their daughters to Molech, though I did not command them to do that, nor did it even enter into my mind that they should do such an abomination. 
And yet the children of Israel, according to the prophet Jeremiah, says that they did it again and again. The worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, also mentioned in this passage here, were associated with harmful self-mutilation, the worship of Baal. And Ashtoreth, the worship of Ashtoreth, was essentially a sexual orgy for all of the worshipers to come and participate in. These foreign nations, the ites that are listed here in our passage, they came into Israel like a Trojan horse. And they destroyed the nation of Israel. And like the people of Troy who unwittingly opened the door to their enemies, Israel opened the heart, their hearts to these false gods by embracing their young men and their young women. And these false gods captured the heart of the people and led them astray exactly as God said that they would. You see, God's Word is truth. And God knows all these things. And He knows the condition of our hearts and the attitude of our hearts. And He knows how these things work. And so He gives us instructions in these particular manners. But they ignored it. And when we ignore the Word of God, we do so to our peril. And so, with all of those things that I said about those false gods, is it any wonder that Ezra is astonished to find that he is coming out of a period of judgment that came upon the people of Israel for the exact same things that these people that are now in front of him are doing. The people are participating in the very same cycle of sin all over again. Hadn't they learned their lesson? What do they think is going to be the end of this matter when it plays itself all out this time? And so Ezra is appalled. King James says, astonied which I don't think is a word, but it says it in there, and it's a form of astonished. Ezra is astonished. Look at the last verses of first, the first Kings passage. I think we have them for the screen. It says, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, etc. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Now the location of those high places which became both the homes of these foreign women and the places where temples were built to their foreign gods, the location of that is just outside of the city of Jerusalem. If you were to go to the city of Jerusalem today, you could go to the Temple Mount area, uh, and you could basically go to the corner, of the, the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount area, and you could stand there and you could look out. And down to your right would be the city of David, where David, now they're archaeologically rebuilding it. It's rather interesting. Every time you go, there's more. But to your left, there's a little bit of a valley. Then there's a high, there's sort of like a hill place or a mountain place just outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's the place where Solomon built these high places. Through history, that area of land where these women lived and their temples were built, it acquired the name the Mount of Scandal. Or some call it the Mount of Corruption. Or even it's called the Mount of Offense. You see, Solomon couldn't bring these foreign women into the city and he couldn't set up their temples to these foreign gods in the city of Jerusalem. So what does he do? He brings it up as close as he possibly can without violating some rule. Solomon couldn't bring the abominations into Jerusalem because that would defile Jerusalem. So what he does instead is brings them right up to the edge. And in doing so, it led to the downfall of his administration and ultimately to the fall of his kingdom. And it's all because he didn't take God seriously and believe God's Word. Unlike his father David, who also had his shortcomings, 
the heart of Solomon was not wholly true to the Lord. Look at verse 6 of 1 Kings 11. So Solomon did what was evil and did not wholly follow the Lord. And because his heart was not wholly true, it was not true at all. And as the title of our sermon alludes to, compromise matters, and it has consequences. So here we are, we are New Testament believers. What now is the application for us? Well, let me begin with by saying what the application is not. This passage should not be looked to or pointed to as a support of the prohibition against interracial marriage. Now the passage, it does speak of the race of the Jewish people and those that are surrounding them, but that in no way applies to a mandate for racial separation in our day. God's chief concern here in this passage in the book of Ezra and earlier in the books of Deuteronomy and the book of Exodus is preserving the line of the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah would come and from preserving his people spiritually. So the first application we don't want to make is say, well, see, interracial marriage, bad thing, which people have done historically. That doesn't come from this particular passage. Secondly, this passage should not be interpreted to imply that God is casting off foreign nations. You see, God is not casting off foreign nations. He's calling foreign nations to cast off their foreign gods. That's his desire. And as we see again and again in Scripture, as depicted examples like Ruth the Moabitess, who came to know the Lord, or the Canaanite Rahab, who came to know the Lord, and, is, and both of them, I think, are in the line of Jesus, our Messiah. So God isn't casting off foreign people, but he wants them to cast off their foreign gods. So those are ways it shouldn't apply. So how does the passage apply to us? Well, first and foremost, I would suggest to you, it's a very clear call to believers of every age to be vigilant in remaining separate from the ways of the world that is around us. It's been said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And you and I, we have been granted our liberty just as each of these returning captives were. We've been set free from our sin, but the price of maintaining that liberty is a constant and an eternal vigilance. Now we've said it multiple times in our study of the book of Ezra and other books as well, that our adversary, the devil, is seeking to trip each one of us up, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. That the devil doesn't want us to maintain our freedom in Christ, but instead he desires to bring us again, as the word says, into a yoke of bondage. But Galatians 5 says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery or a yoke of bondage. You see, as Christians, as followers of Christ, whether we've been in the Lord for a year or we've been in the Lord for 20 years, you and I must be on our guard to not let that happen. That is, not to be brought again under a yoke of bondage. And so then, as followers of the Lord, that means that we purposefully guard the things that we watch or the things that we listen to or the things that we read or the places that we go. Now, you hear that and you might think, well, isn't that legalism? Isn't that legal? Isn't that what the Baptists did? And that's why nobody likes Baptists anymore and they're all changing their names because they have a bad reputation or whatever. Isn't that legalism? No, it's not legalism at all. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. You see, when I, my wife and I, we had young kids and we're very proud to say that all of our kids made it through their 
toddler years safely and, well, alive. They made it through. But it wasn't legalism for us when we put those little cabinet locks on the door, uh, the cabinet doors underneath the sink. It was annoying, but it wasn't legalism for us to put those locks on the door as we sought to prevent the kids from getting under the sink and drinking from the bottle of bleach. That wasn't legalism to put those safeguards in place. It was wisdom designed to protect our children. You see, it's about being on our guard and not providing the enemy a foothold from which he can trip us up. So it says in Ephesians 4, give no opportunity to the devil. Can you go down to that bar and hang out with your friends? Yeah, you can. But will that provide the enemy a foothold to trip you up? Well, then you better not go down there. Can you listen to that particular thing? Can you read that particular thing? Can you talk to that particular crowd of people and gather in that particular way? You can do those things. You have the freedom in Christ. But if they're going to provide a foothold that will trip you up, then don't go down there. Don't go down there at all. It's a big mistake. Now, that's the general principle that we can glean from this passage of Scripture. That we are to be on our guard against the ways that the devil very subtly might be scheming to trip us up and to keep ourselves from those schemes. The specific application of this passage to us as New Testament believers would essentially ask this question, should New Testament believers only marry other believers? Or is it okay for them to date and ultimately marry unbelievers? Well, if we are, if we, all we had was the Ezra passage, I think that would be enough to say that the Scripture makes it pretty clear that a believer should only marry another believer. Both the principles of Scripture and the repeated example of the Jewish believers seem too clear to ignore in that case. But the passage in Ezra is not the only passage we have addressing the question, should, the believers, mar- should believers only marry other believers? In fact, the Apostle Paul makes a very clear statement on this. And he addresses it, he uses this word, the yoking together, or phrase, of believer and unbeliever. So we read in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, a false god? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of gods with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Now, someone might look at that and say, well, you know, that doesn't say anything specifically about marriage. And you're right, it doesn't. But it does clearly speak of yoking ourselves to another person. And is there anything more significant and all life-encompassing than the yoking of two people together in the bonds of matrimony? The prophet Amos in the Old Testament, he said this, can two walk together except they be agreed? And I would answer that they can try. They can certainly try to, but eventually the pull in two different directions will either rip them apart or will lead one of the two to alter their course. And remember what we had said previously, which is easier, to pull someone up to the higher level or to drag someone down to the lower plane? Now, I would apply that 2 Corinthians passage even further, beyond whether or not these two people standing in front of me hoping to get married are both believers. I would apply it even further and really ask the question, are they equally yoked? 
Are they both going in the same direction? Are they both running after the same things? And are they both moving at the same pace? Because too often we see and hear folks that are settling for someone because, quote, technically they qualify as marriage eligible because they once went forward at a crusade or they raised their hand at the end of some Sunday school class and so now technically they qualify as a believer and thus I can go ahead and marry them. The question is not whether they technically qualify or not. The question should be, as you're choosing a marriage partner, is this, whether they will spur you on to greater godliness. Will that person be an asset to your spiritual walk or a drag? Will they be motivated by the things of God and seek to submit themselves to the ways of God or not? And if not, then even if they are technically a Christian, I would suggest to you you're setting yourself up for one of two things. Either you will be in for a whole bunch of tension in your marriage in which the two of you are constantly struggling to get on the same page, or you will eventually give in and compromise and end up with a mediocre, it's a hard word to say, Christian life. The issue is that important. Well, I know a person that, yeah, I'm sure you do. And there's, I'm sure there's examples of people that, you know, my husband, my wife came to know the Lord and it's a good thing that I was there and so on and so forth. But for every instance that you bring of a person that came to Christ as a result of an unequally yoked relationship, we could literally present to you scores of anecdotal information of men and women that instead went through terrible heartache, pain, and frustration. Trust me. Learn the lesson from those that have gone before us. Don't be like the Israelites of old and countless New Testament believers even to the present that rationalize the way Paul's clear instructions. Remember these statements? I know what God's Word says, but that was written 2,000 years ago. Times have changed. Or there aren't any nice, cute girls at my church. Or I'm hoping I can be a positive influence on him or on her. Or again, even in the extreme, I know what God's Word says, but I don't care. I know that He'll forgive me. God in His wisdom has spoken to us in His Word for our protection. And as I said earlier, we ignore it to our peril. Now, what if you are already married to an unbeliever? Perhaps you were a believer and you married an unbeliever and you know for whatever reason. Or you've come to know the Lord just recently uh, after you've already been married. What should you do then? Well, we're going to talk about it in much greater detail next week, but I do want to provide a quick response to anyone that may be asking that question this morning because I would hate to see anyone making some rash decision before we had time to actually address it. So again, we turn to the New Testament, and again, we turn to the Apostle Paul, and this time into his writing in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, To the rest I say, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, then he should not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. The clear instruction for New Testament believers is to not divorce, but rather to remain in that situation, to be a light, to have a positive influence on any children that may come as a result of that relationship, and hopefully, by God's grace and His mercy, lead that person 
into a saving understanding of the work of Jesus on the cross for them. So we're going to talk about it much more in greater detail next week. What do you do if you're in a situation unequally yoked? Um, but I didn't want anyone making rash decisions like, all right, well, I'm going to follow God and obey him. And sorry, honey, you're out. You know, Pastor Greg said so. Um, so I did want to make sure I threw that to you there. Let me, let me just draw this to a head. Compromise matters. And the Word of God has given us clear instructions on most matters that we will encounter on a day-to-day basis. Compromise matters. Additionally, the Holy Spirit, as our guide and teacher, provides us with leadings and convictions and guide. And when we ignore the Word of God and we ignore the leadings of the Holy Spirit, we do so to our peril. And so burn these words into your heart. Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. And God is not mocked. A man will reap that which he sows. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for a challenging message, Lord. Lord, you know the tendency of our hearts, and you know that we need to be challenged by the Word of God. And Father, uh, some of us are dealing with some of these really large issues, like who we're marrying and uh, marital relationships. And for others of us, it might just be seemingly smaller things. Maybe the things we turn on the TV, the books that we're looking at and reading, the conversations that we're participating in and being a part of, the things we're ingesting into our bodies, Lord. And Lord, you've uh, no doubt directed each one of us very clearly, both in your word and by your spirit. And it's our responsibility, Lord, to respond to that leading. And Father, I just want to pray especially, Lord, for those of us that have been in the Lord for a period of time. And Lord, I just want to uh, pray and just ask by your mercy that your spirit, Lord, would just put his kind finger on areas of our lives where perhaps we've drifted. We've made some decisions over the years that we would have never made at the start of our walk with you. But for one reason or another, we began to just rationalize away and say it's okay in my case. And, and Lord, we know that compromise matter and it drags us down. And ultimately, it's not your will for our lives. And so, Lord, we just pray. We give ourselves to you. And we pray for the courage to respond as you guide us. Lord, we know the Word teaches you're a great physician. And Lord, we know, we suspect you must have been sort of a surgeon. Because, Lord, you can cut, Lord, into the deep places. And you can do work, Lord, in those areas that need work done in order for them to function properly. And so, Lord, as the great surgeon, we ask that you would cut deep. And you do a good healing work. And we pray in Jesus' name this prayer.